Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pros and Content Podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, and I'm hosting our data-driven CMO series, during which I will interview CMOs who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their business forward. In these interviews, we're going to reveal really unique perspectives on the importance and intersection of measurement and content, but also a ton of fun personal stories and great career advice from these incredible leaders. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Data Driven CMO podcast. My guest today is Tony Weissman, who I actually met relatively recently, and he very quickly became one of my favorite people, which says a lot because we were just talking about astrological signs and Virgos, <laughs> actually, which who I am. My birthday's coming up soon, by the way, Tony. But Virgos, oh, Virgos tend to not like people. So, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the biggest fan of people. And somehow from the first conversation we had, I really liked you. And it was because you were very direct and very honest and very funny. And so if you can bring all those qualities out during this <laughs> podcast, that'd be amazing. So welcome yeah, to I appreciate the expectations. Thank you. And I didn't actually know when we met that it was such a high bar. So I'm delighted to know. I would have. There is. But you seem to have a really high bar too, because you've given me a lot of feedback about things I do well in meetings and things I don't do well in meetings. And I can tell that you work with a lot of great people. And in your role now, you're sitting on a bunch of boards and you get to witness leaders do the right thing and the wrong thing. So I'm excited to hear what trends you're seeing. Sure. So let's get started with kind of a high level question because I'm curious. I don't even actually think I know the answer to this question, which ah. is how did you get started? in this world of marketing advertising. Oh, right. I had the great good fortune to start my career at Leo Burnett Advertising. My dad was in the ad business. He was a PR guy. So I had some sense of it. And then I very luckily got that job out of college. And Leo Burnett in the back half of the 20th century was the MBA of advertising. It was extremely well-respected. I learned a lot. And the beauty of the business was it was privately held. And uh, spent a lot of money and time training us. So I had the benefit of really learning from experts about what makes great communication. And the beauty of Leo Burnett was that it was built on Leo's vision of direct speak, the Midwestern, sort of honest, easy to relate to, very human. It was in contrast to what was then known as the Madison Avenue hard sell approach. Mm -hmm. And Leo, who I never had the pleasure of meeting, used to say that I like to believe that my copywriters spit on the backs of their hands before they pick up one of our pencils. And <laughs> so he had this image of these, you know, real down to earth people. And that was how I learned the business. And most importantly, what I learned was storytelling, storytelling built on insights. And, you know, Leo Burnett is famous for dozens of campaigns over the years that shaped lots of brands and shape my worldview. And I was there 20 years and I'm very grateful. 20 years. Wow. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to join the quote unquote brand side? Well, my career was really defined by two things. First of all, a big chunk of my time at Leo Burnett, I was lucky enough to work on the McDonald's business. And it was an icon that I grew up with, a Chicago-based company. And we did great work. We had really a great run of you're doing some amazing work with great partners. And what I learned in that business was that we could have great advertising or a great promotion, 
But if the Happy Meal toy ran out a day before or a day after planned, it wasn't good. And mm. so I started to understand this mantra that McDonald's lived by, which was think like a brand, act like a retailer. And I started to appreciate retail really was the business. And I really needed to understand everything involved in bringing traffic in, moving them smoothly through the store and understanding the logistics of things like Happy Meal toys or mm. POP or, you know, there was the old bring them in, trade them up. And these kinds of dynamics that were incredibly important in all manner of retail. And so that led me in my first phase to go beyond the advertising world to what has always traditionally been referred to as below the line, promotion, direct marketing, digital data, et cetera, the things that were traditionally seen as less worthy than the above the line advertising. You know, these distinctions have all gone away. And so that led me to draft, which was a... Uh, direct marketing analytics promotion business as part of IPG. And that led me to Digitas to learn the digital business. And so that was my attempt to sort of understand the full span of the marketing world. And then while I was at Digitas, I started to really spend time with some great marketing leaders and decided that that's what I wanted to do and had the good fortune to have our client Dunkin' Donuts be looking for a CMO at the right time. And so I interviewed for him and got that job in 2017. And it felt like I couldn't really understand marketing until I sat on both sides of the table. Hmm. What was the most surprising thing becoming a CMO, looking at the job from within? What was the most surprising thing? How little time I thought about our agencies. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> because you assume that agencies were always on CMO's mind. <laughs> yeah. And why is and that? I know then... What I knew now kind of thing, like, you know, you're obsessed as the agency and thinking about this all the time and you get 30 minutes a week and that's the 30 minutes you spend thinking about the, yeah. the work from the agency. So I learned that. I learned that um, agencies are obsessed with clients, you know, the client's the decision maker, right? And there's this myth that oh, I can't wait to make it be a client and snap my fingers and make a decision. Then you realize everybody's got clients. Mm -hmm. You know, at Duncan, it's the franchisees. There's always stakeholders. So I think you tend to have a much broader understanding of stakeholders. You know, and you learn, I mean, the corollary to the Happy Meals and McDonald's was understanding that you could create a concoction in your test kitchen, but if it wasn't easy to make and easy to communicate and easy to supply to customers in a store that tends to be extremely hectic between seven and nine in the morning, then it was a bad idea. And so you had to spend a lot of time really understanding foot patterns and how things are made and how they're stored and how they're displayed and everything that goes into, if you will, the last mile of a product that has tends not to enter your thinking when you're in a test kitchen trying to figure out what's the next great food product. You have to think a lot about how to, like, in the morning, you know, Duncan is, is an all-day business, but it's very, very heavy in the morning, right? And we move people through pretty quickly. Uh, Drive-through was always a big deal, has become a bigger deal since COVID. But you realize things like if you drive up to the driveway into the parking lot and the cars are backed up to that point, you're going to keep going. And mm. whether that car gets in that line or not can be the difference in how much profitability the franchisee makes in that hour. And mm. so you really got to think all the way back from that moment and not just speed, but clarity and simple communication. So when you go to design a menu board in a drive-through, 
you have this long list of things you want to tell people and you got to think about what's the fastest way to get the person through that point. I'll mm-hmm. give you another example. You know, we, we had Digitas built the app. And when I got to Duncan, we had to think through the app. And I kept saying to the team, I keep feeling like this app keeps asking me, are you sure you want this coffee? And I know I want, I need that coffee. And so we kept cutting steps out in the mm-hmm. process between opening the app and getting the coffee. And the key to this, and it relates a lot to data-driven, is there's a few things that I consider important in making decisions like this. The first is if you get into a room and you hear somebody use the sentence, it would be good to know, you have to stop them. And you have to say, is it essential or would it be good to know? Mm. And most, I think, of the data collecting that goes on and a lot of the research that's done comes under the heading of, it would be good to know. So let's ask, let's find this out. And you see that through the process of ordering. Like, well, it would be good to know X and Y. It would be good to know if they're coming. A perfect example is, you know, the stores were set up where you had to decide before you got to the store whether you were going to walk in or drive through. And the reality is we've all been to it. Well, I thought I was going to drive through and I got there and the line's really long, but I realized I could actually walk in and get it faster. So we made our problem your problem. So we said, we got to eliminate that. You have to be able to choose when you get to the store and it won't matter. That's a big thing that has to get solved. Right. So you keep keep asking yourself, when someone says it would be good to know, stop and say, but is it essential? Because a lot of the stuff that's good to know just doesn't matter. And all it does is create friction. And yeah. those are the kind of things that when I mean, you're in the agency world, you're sitting around, wow, it'd be great if we knew this and let's find that out. And if you're on the client side, you're like, yeah, but that could take an extra two seconds I don't have. Well, I think what's interesting about this mindset is that you start with two mandates, it sounds like. One is curiosity, so trying to learn about your customer and not make assumptions. And the second one is reduce friction at all costs, as much friction as possible, right? Absolutely. The thing that I've seen over the last maybe three or four years, meeting a lot of CMOs, meeting a lot of marketing teams, is that oftentimes the mindset starts with an assumption that is very strongly held about the customer and how they work. A lot gets executed around that assumption. And then the data is brought in to prove that something mm-hmm. worked. Yeah. I mean, I can't even count on like 50 hands how many times I've heard we need to prove that this worked. I'm assuming you've come across that. I'm assuming you had clients like that when you were on the agency side who thought that way. How do you deal with that? We used to refer to that as Acme Research, the results you want when you want them. <laughs> and- <laughs> Well, you know, first of all, there's a lot of people out there trying to validate their jobs uh, yeah. to their management. I've rarely seen data do that. Most senior people are pretty savvy about the quality of the work their teams are doing and the importance of it and the rank importance. And I don't often see piles of data turning people like that. I think instead you got to ask, well, why do they doubt this? And maybe mm-hmm. they are doubting it for a good reason, or maybe it's not as important as other things in the company. Maybe I should go work on something else, or maybe I should find or ask if I can get on the team that's doing something that matters more. It takes a lot of self-confidence and awareness to know that you're probably fighting a losing battle. Data, you can pile data very, very high. It doesn't always overcome a judgment, and it shouldn't. Most senior leaders are in their jobs because they blend data and judgment. And when you park the judgment at the door, you're going to lose your job and you're going to miss out on opportunities, you're going to lose instinct, you're going to lose the creativity and the innovation that the company needs. Do you, do you lose your job if you park the data at the door or just the judgment? 
I think you do. And I think if you rely, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about results. What are the outcomes I'm going to be measured on? Mm-hmm. And if I do well, I'll get bonus. Then if I don't, I'm going to lose my job. And you have to have alignment with whoever your most senior stakeholders are on that. And then you can't keep, <laughs> if you just pile the data, but the results aren't there, you're not going to keep your job. And, you know, I tell people like, they'll say things to me like, well, I'm 90% sure. I say, when you go in that room, you got to be 100% sure, because if it doesn't work, we're all going to lose our jobs anyway. And the fact that we said, well, remember, I wasn't completely sure isn't going to matter. Okay. And I think what, I think in broadly speaking, what we're missing in the world is insight. It's the most abused term and nine out of 10 of them are observations. They're not insights. And what you get, what I would pay people for is an insight. I don't need reams of data. I need you to tell me what I don't know. I need you to see through it and get me an insight that will change the direction of what we're doing, how we're communicating, what we're thinking. You know, for example, this is a, these examples have been used forever. Henry Ford used to say, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? Steve Jobs said, if I asked people how to design the iPhone, it wouldn't have come out like this. Lee Iacocca, like the, you know, nobody said in a focus group, What I really need is something that's kind of like a station wagon, but a little higher and has sliding doors. What they heard was parents' frustration with station wagons, and they invented the minivan. That's insight. That's your job. And so the other thing, when I had research teams, you know, there's things I listened for. I told you one. Another one I listened for is, as you would expect, I would always stop the meeting. (laughs) Okay, explain to me why we spent time and money on research to find out something that you would expect to know. Mm. Because a lot of these people feel, as you said, it's their job to provide their data that says we're doing the right thing. I don't want that. (laughs) Okay. We knew that. We wasted our customers' time and our time asking that. What I want is what I don't know. Okay. My brief to mentors, mentees, et cetera, was always telling me something I don't know. You have to have that attitude, like something I don't know, something I'm missing, something that's beyond just the surface that requires digging. That is what is, leads to a competitive advantage. That gets you there first. That gets you there better. And that's data that matters. And so as a vendor, I always say, walk in the room with something they don't know. Start the meeting with, here's something you don't know about your business, your customer, your competitors. And here's how I'm going to solve it for you. That to me, it takes courage. It takes skills. It takes, you got to be able to gather the data in a coherent way and more time, spend time with it in a way that gets you an insight. And these- I think it takes confidence in what you do know. Because mm-hmm. you're proposing that people should park that, but it's hard to park it unless you have confidence in it. And I think a lot of you know, younger professionals are taught to question their own judgment until they have an abundance of data that's confirmatory. I think that's a great observation. And I think that's sad and, um, because mm-hmm. I think it... The cultures where that exists are ones that are skeptical about everything. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's only some, you're never going to get all the data you need to make something absolutely incontrovertible or absolute. It's just chasing absolutes. There's nothing. We are playing a game of marketing on a raft in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, And there's this fruitless ambition to sort of nail down each corner of the raft right there. It's secure. It's not, well, that's not how it works. The raft moves, everything's moving all the time on an hourly and daily basis. What have we learned from COVID? Everything we used to know isn't true anymore. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now we're learning things that happened in COVID is not true again. Right. Right. <laughs> and why? Consumers are fickle. Okay. We're all fickle. That's okay. We have a right. We have lots of choices. We live in a, a society that gives us plenty of choices. A, B, things happen faster. That most consumer preferences are happening faster than the tools to track them. Right. We have a, a lack of reliable tools that perform in real time. And you just have to be fluid. You have to understand that just because it was true last month, last quarter, last year, doesn't mean it's true today. And those are the companies that win, the ones that embrace that fluidity. I think the, um, why are consumers fickle? Because they can be, and because it's fun. <laughs> okay, it's fun to try new things, okay? If you like shopping on Instagram like I do, <laughs> the barriers to trying things are zero. <laughs> yeah. Okay, click, all right. These things aren't expensive. They're from brands I've never heard of that I don't think actually exist. Yeah, you'll I, never remember the brand name. I'll never remember the brand and I don't care. Actually, okay, here's one, Roback. I'm wearing a Roback shirt. This is a Rhodesian Ridgeback, which according to the legend on the Instagram, our owner owns these dogs, right? I found it accidentally one day. I like it. It feels comfortable, okay? I don't know if that guy exists. I don't really actually care. I don't, I don't know, know if the Rhodesian Ridgeback exists. I don't really right? give a shit, right? <laughs> And loyalty is a complete hoax. There is no loyalty in the world. Loyalty programs were started by the airlines, okay? You're not a loyal, you're a hostage, okay? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right? And I don't like being a hostage, but God damn it, you have my numbers, you have my miles, et cetera. You know, so, right? Loyalty. I mean, we're just not, loyalty is, is an abused concept. No, you just keep delighting me. Like if these guys keep hitting my Instagram with, shirt designs that I think look cool or whatever, I'll periodically buy them. I will probably forget the name of the brand as I do. But my point is like the barriers are so low. Yeah. And if it shows up and it's garbage, whatever. I mean, these are for low consideration project products. And you've got these teams of people who are running around with, these are our most loyal customers. And these right. are, right. The other thing I didn't understand in the agency world that I did come to understand at Duncan, for example, is the games in the middle, the games, the switchers. And I used to say things like, you know, we could pour arsenic in the coffee and the people who are there every day at 7 a.m. are not going to stop coming. It's just part of their habit, their routine. We love them, but we think about them too much. Okay. They're very, very satisfied. We're on their route. They know us. We know them. Every single store, every single one could tell you a story of, I make her order when I see her come through the door. I know, you know, great. Don't mess that up. What's the name of the person behind her? You don't know. And that's who you need to spend time because you know what they do? They go to Starbucks every other day. Yeah. Okay. And those are the people you need to ask, well, how do I get that person to come one more time? How do I find a way to say, make you feel as welcome as the person I know every day? So you focus on friction, like you were saying. How do I take Every piece of friction out of this relationship, whether it's product, price, promotion, the relationship, you name it, just eliminate the friction and you'll make the right decisions. But you need the right data to figure out what the friction points are. Study so that. the kind of two questions that came to mind, the logic was trust your judgment when it comes to things you already know. Yes. Try to get data for the things you don't know and 
really hunt for the insights that help you reduce friction. And kind of as I was hearing you take me through this logic, I had two questions. The first one was ultimately the need that we feel to collect data about things we already know fundamentally comes from a fear of failure. Yes. And in marketing and advertising, I think it's kind of very binary, right? If you're in, an, in the agency world, there's always these pitches and you either win or you lose. So I want to ask, you know, kind of both on the agency side, but also on the marketing side, how have you done that for your teams? How have you worked to remove that fear of failure and to what extent? And then the second, as I was thinking about that, you know, how do you reduce friction? This kind of idea of, of brand and loyalty. I struggle so much with brand spend and brand teams and, and just brand in general. It's this kind of ever elusive thing where you know it's important. Of course, it's important. But what does it mean? And what does it mean to spend money on it? And boy, do you struggle if you try to get any data on that that really correlates with business results. So I'm kind of separately curious, how have you built brand teams, dealt with data in that context, et cetera? Well, the first thing, so how do you eliminate the fear of failure? Well, first of all, this is all about the leaders at the top. The leaders at the top of the organization have to give the people in the roles they're in a clear set of metrics and a clear sense that you matter, I believe in you, and if this doesn't work out, we'll find something else for you to do or we'll change the metrics. But you have to give people a sense of confidence and belief and support or they seize. And when you seize up and you go into this mentality and you know you see this from a body language standpoint, you see this sort of curling in, it's your job as a leader to say, no, you're on the right path. This is the right thing. Go at it 110%. And if it doesn't work out, we'll figure something else out. Now, to be fair, some portion of the team is always not quite up to it. And those are the people you have to exit. Layoffs kill me because, I mean, I understand macroeconomic conditions for a lot of businesses, but it just means that you haven't been weeding regularly and you should. Yeah, regularly. Yeah. And it's not really just that underperformers need to go is they're taking a seat that could belong to a star. And your job as a leader is to find and promote stars. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, own it with them. Like this didn't work. Let's shut that down and let's go work on this. And I'm sure you're capable of working on that and let's go after it. It's very, very hard if you're not getting that from the top to find it on your own. Yep. Okay. And, you know, as I tell people all the time, go to your manager and say, is this right or is this right? Because if this works out, this is where it's going to go. Is this where we want it to go? Are we sure everybody wants it to go here? And escalate. Because it's just, you're going to get so much more done with people who are leaning in and confident. Okay. So your job is to induce that confidence. This idea of brand is incredibly elusive. It's in an unsettled moment. You know, for decades and decades, our business was defined by creating the brand. Mm. And brand managers at P&G were invented as owners of the brand. And they'd had all this iconography and, you know, this whole idea of a brand purpose and a brand box and, a, you know, a brand identity and all that. And when you move into the wild world of one-to-one -one marketing, all that gets a little loose. And the thing that has been most troubling for marketers these days is that consumers are identifying the brand for us and they're taking it into their own life and making it both for good and ill what they want it to be. So first of all, I think we have slightly blunt instruments these days for measuring what does that affinity mean? The second thing I think that we have forgotten is the power of badge value. So 
what a brand says about me still matters a lot. And if you think about over decades, the brand of cigarette, the brand of beer, the brand Mm -hmm. of car that I drive, what I am surrounding myself with is a big part of my identity. And I would ask you to, if you think this isn't real, just take a look at how many TikTok or Instagram videos have recognizable brands in them, even when they're not sponsored. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I want you to know that this is my brand of blank. You yeah, know, yeah. I want you to associate that with me. So when people say brands don't matter, that's wrong. Okay. That is just wrong. And the first thing you have to do is attack that and say, well, there's just humanity hasn't changed from this idea that brands are, are a reflection of who I am and what I want you to think about me. What you don't know is what your brand says about that person. That's the part that you aren't quite clear about. Does it say I'm left versus right? Does it say I'm more about sustainability? Does it say I'm more about efficiency? Does it say I'm more about prestige, et cetera? The real problem in this is that most marketers are afraid to use the words that some of these brands are associated with, like prestige. This is a brand that is prestigious. And I like to think of myself as being prestigious. This is a brand that says I have very refined taste. Those are awkward things to say out loud, right? But it is the reason a lot of brands exist. So I think we have to, first of all, understand that that dynamic hasn't changed, but the tools that we use to understand what this says about me are blunt and are not as effective as they once were. Sure. I think one of the questions that I'm asking myself as I hear you talk about this is how much of brand creation happens organically once you put it in the hands of consumers versus how much do you tell the consumer what this brand is supposed to be about and how does that feedback loop work? And I think one of the funniest examples for me has, you know, having lived in Silicon Valley has always been the Patagonia vest because I I could not buy a Patagonia vest and not think about VC bros. You know, I would never think about sustainability and Argentina and like whatever. I don't even know what else they would want me to think about because the only thing I think about is VC pros. Actually, I think almost every vest now just makes me think of pros. (laughs) Exactly. That felt because the Patagonia basically came out and was like, please stop. We don't want you to buy these. Please stop. We're not going to actually make logos on, you know, but long story short, I just wonder how much of that is organic and how it all happens. I don't know. And how you measure it. Well, it's an excellent point. I think, first of all, the first thing you say, which is really important, is how much do you say versus how much to let them learn? I don't think we do enough letting learn. Consumers are inherently curious. So why do I know the guy had a Rhodesian? Because I at least went and found out. You know, I went to the site. Right, exactly. Yeah. And if your site doesn't because have our you want story, a story, uh, you yeah, want, exactly. we are story, right? Since cave people, we are storytellers. And all content is storytelling. Most of it sucks. But if you do it well and you tell a story well, people remember it. Everybody remembers stories. Nobody remembers facts. So you have to have our story. And it has to be real and honest and believable. I would say I give that about a 50% hit rate. About 50% of the time, it just sounds like somebody in the PR department wrote gobbledygook. And it's filled with cliches. And sometimes the founder just said, here's who I am and here's why I did this. And here's why I think it makes sense. I hope you agree. Tell me. The second thing is, Discovery. There's nothing greater than discovering little things when you open the package. You know, a little note here, a little label here. You know, unboxing became a thing with Apple because they put so much thought into what no previous direct-to-consumer brand had ever done, which was the experience of receiving it. So take that lesson. Like, 
you know, it doesn't have to feel like it came in a generic box. It can feel joyous. When that thing arrived, first of all, nine out of 10 times when it arrives, you forget what it was, right? So have the joy again of experiencing it. And then give me an opportunity to learn more. Let me go to the site. Let me see some videos. Let me see the team in action. Content has to be thoughtful. You know, more is not better. You don't need tons of it. I don't actually want to watch tons of it, but I want to get into a story, a short story here and there about why you did this, who you are, and make it authentic. That stuff's really powerful. And by the way, an enormous amount of this stuff is not set up to be easily shared, which blows my mind. (laughs) Yeah. Just let me share it and tell people, hey, I found this. Because the other thing, to your point about in the hands of other people, We like to be seen as people who found things. We like to get credit in our social community for being discoverers, okay? And certainly there's nothing more valuable than peer-to-peer. So, hey, this is kind of a cool story you guys all might like. This is where I think brands exist today. And you have to think about that whole journey from the minute. Okay, start with the confirmation email. Start with that and read it. Does it read like it came from a... An algorithm? Yes. Does it read like it came from the person who found? Yes. Okay, great. Reads like a human. All right. And then use SMS or email. Hey, it's coming. Here's a piece of information. What is the follow-up email? And just think about all these touch points as a way to express your brand. And by the way, always give me an opportunity to click through and see video Mm. and ultimately share it. That's how you build this kind of modern day relationship. And The brands that I adore are the ones who think about this narrative, have a narrative, produce it well. I don't need a lot. I don't need a lot. I just need one. Give me a couple of examples. Viore is a clothing brand. I love Viore. I like quite a bit. Okay. Okay. So just unbox that moment. I threw out a brand. You love it. That makes me feel good and valid. Yeah. Makes me feel better than had you said, I've never heard of it. What is it? Yeah. 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 Okay. Nice logo design, very nice, but not over the top. And I love, frankly, when people go, "Oh, very cool, yeah, I love that stuff." Yeah, yeah, you know. And their video, the the VCs started wearing Viori, and then yeah, I know. Well, (laughs) you know, I will say, (laughs) Patagonia had a real challenge with that. You know, it's not like Timberland becoming the hip hop brand. I know, I know. And you know, the problem was they loved it because right, you're like in two minutes, this is over. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, and you don't want that. And I admire Patagonia. I wish, I think they wish they had come out earlier and said, we're not making logo where yeah. or that's yeah. not who we are. I think they probably should have done that earlier because it was starting to, like you guys, if you want to wear those, make them Land's End best, not ours. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Tony, in the interest of time, I wanted to yeah. switch gears for a second because one of the things that I know you're amazing at is being a board member and a board observer. And that's kind of more in the being in the B2B mindset versus the kind of consumer brand mindset. I'm curious, what are you seeing across the companies you're working with, especially as it relates to some of the turbulent times slash eventful summer slash who knows what's going to happen next with the economy? What are the trends you're seeing? Well, I mean, you know, the macro trends are consistent across the board where there's a, a pipeline is much harder to predict. Revenue forecasts are much harder. Everyone's getting pretty conservative. And as you've read a lot, cash is king. So if you're going to raise, raise now. If you, if you have 
ways of putting in a cushion, you know, prepare for the worst, get your costs in line. And unfortunately, you've seen that play out with a lot of layoffs or you've seen, you know, product line shut down or Peloton closing retail, things like that. So you hear that consistently. It's a conservative approach to, we don't really know where this is going to go, but we need to be prepared and be able to run the business, you know, if things get really bad, number one. Number two, it's a great time to get talent. With the bigger companies who are doing really big layoffs, you just cannot be selective enough to make sure that you're only you know, eliminating underperformers or, or average players. And there's some insanely good talent that all of a sudden become available. And so we have pushed the, um, we put the gas down on recruiting for top talent. And, you know, whether you call it the great resignation or the reshuffling that's going on right now, there's a lot of very, very talented people out there who can join your mission. The third thing is there is a, a real focus on what are we doing that really matters and what should we stop doing that at the time in the frothy time seemed like that well that could be fun to figure out there were a lot of pilots and you know maybe we go this ways and that could be interesting that we're non-core we're not really good at we're draining important resources and uh, we're likely probably never going to see the light of day that are just getting shut down which i think it makes a ton of sense and obviously brand spend tends to go down in times like these do you think it's partially because of that reason? I think it's two things. I think one, there is a historical belief that you can find the data if you want to support it. <laughs> you know, I think there's just as much data both ways, but there's, there's a lot of, every time I've been through a recession, somebody surfaces a study that says the brands that come out of this best are the ones who spend on brand during the exactly. recession. Right. Yep. The CFO is like, blah, blah, blah. No. And <laughs> so I don't think there's a, you know, I don't think there's a answer, but I do think the brands, I grew up in an era where you were either a direct to consumer or you were not, you know, you were PNG or Unilever and you didn't have a direct relationship or you were, and that's over. Like everybody is a direct to consumer now. And, you know, you hear a lot of yammering about multi-touch attribution, but the reality is people buy a lot of search because it's highly attributable. And it feels like the stuff that you can feel best about spending on, you know, that it, mm-hmm. uh, because it has the highest corollary. I would say that where this goes off the rails is, and this is how I would address it in the room. I'm like, okay, think about your own behavior. Think about the last thing you shop for, for your home, a ladder or something for your kids or whatever. And you did a Google search and, or you went on Amazon and started searching. Like, how many times were you buying something you'd never heard of, had no relationship with, you read the reviews, but you thought maybe they weren't authentic? That's just not how the brain works, okay? What you are searching for between I want and I get is some order of trust and some element of belief that this is a, a smart decision. And that comes in the form of a brand, okay? Brands are essentially metaphors for trust. And when you stop investing in that brand, no matter how high, how much you've paid for the term, no matter how much you believe in, you know, lower funnel, your business is going to suffer because people don't trust. Okay. They have forgotten who you are. And that's the argument. And my, my success, I think, when I've encountered this has always been, let's take it off the PowerPoint and the esoteric and put it into personal. Mm. 
what decision did you make that was influenced in part by I had reason to trust this brand or others I trust trusted this brand? Okay. And if you make it something like for your kids or your toddlers or whatever, you're going to go, hmm, it just doesn't feel like a space I want to be risky in. Right. Okay. And so you're like the same with what we're selling. And I think the higher consideration of the product, the more you need that. I mean, obviously, we're very focused on companies that are creating a lot of content. In times like these, one of the other trends that in some ways goes against this notion of direct and quick attribution is the focus on organic and really trying to get more with less. Which feels Um, like free, but nothing's free. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's definitely not free, but it's more efficient. Yeah, but it's, it requires you to think, you know, first of all, you have to invest in the content, okay? It means you have to have a good story and a good storyteller and tell it well. Yeah. You know, I think of it as a cost center, not a profit center, because you okay. should invest in telling your story as much as you invest in creating it and creating the product and service. And the thing I love about what you guys do is you're providing marketers with tools to understand how that's working, because this is a brave new world. You know, if you look at, what brands have been doing, first thing they did is they in-housed media, which is largely data-driven and largely rational. Yeah. And they have migrated over the last decade to in-housing things that are more subjective and more judgment-based. They started with creative teams that did iterations with the mm-hmm. big creative ideas still came from the outside, but now that's coming in-house. And you know, you have chief content officers coming on the inside, right? You cannot think about that like you thought about the data team and the media team. You have to have people with taste, (laughs) okay? The person I hired to be our chief content officer at Duncan, the brief was good taste, okay? (laughs) So I'm Uh, assuming you judged what earrings they wore in the first meeting. (laughs) And and I used to be like, you know, I want this person to go around the room and have everybody say all the reasons why it was a bad idea and have this person go, I don't know, I like it, we're going to do it. And because at the end of the day, you need confidence and taste. And I like that. Back to judgment. Right. Yeah. You know, judgment's cheaper than research. And, <laughs> but judgment and probably, feels like, you know, and, and, and I want people to go into, you know, I mean, you know, have the CEO going, why are we doing this? We'd say, because it's yeah. just great. It's just great. Okay. Trust me. And, <laughs> and you're not all going to be great. But the safety. I love the fact boring. that I hope that we can put that on a poster to advertise the pot, the data-driven CMO podcast. Judgment is cheaper than research. <laughs> <laughs> you can do whatever you want. <laughs> I think the punchline though is the data is important, but it sounds like you think of data and the insights you don't know as secondary to some of the human insights and the judgment, right? And you need people who have the confidence and the creativity to come up with them. And then you need data to help reduce costs, to help attribute things, to increase conversion rates, to et cetera. But I think what you're saying is data shouldn't be used primarily to increase confidence in decisions that you've already made. And I agree with that. I think that's a great statement. Well, you just did a very nice job articulating what I've been trying to articulate. So yeah, that's well said. said. That shows excellent listening skills, synthesis, which is incredibly important and articulate. Very important. Very well said. I appreciate that, Tony. You're the one who gave me the story. I think you're a good storyteller. I'm probably a good listener and synthesizer. (laughs) 
That's a word. Listening, so let's end this beautiful yeah. mutual complimentary <laughs> <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but thank you so much for the insight. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the humor and thank you for the frankness you delivered on all the fronts that I was hoping you'd deliver on. Thank you, Tony. Wow, you're very kind. Anytime. It was great to be with you. Ciao. Cool. Thanks for listening to Data Driven CMO. Take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with CMOs who are ahead of the curve in content and data, using both to move their businesses forward. Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at Notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. And thanks for listening.